Hello and welcome to the RI Science Podcast. If you see a newspaper headline with a big, bold statistic, how do you know that you can trust it? How often do false positive and false negative test results occur in medical screenings? And how do you safely bet whether or not two people in any room will share a birthday? This month, we hear from Kit Yates about the maths of medicine, crime and the media, exploring real-world data from his book, The Maths of Life and Death. This talk was recorded from our theatre at the Royal Institution back in January 2020. If you want to hear more like this, head over to rigb.org to sign up for our upcoming livestream events. So tonight I'm going to tell you a little bit more about uh, my book, which is, thanks Tom, The Maths of Life and Death. I have to be careful to say maths because it just launched in America this week where it is very much math and not maths. Um, So I want to be clear from the start that this is not a maths book. It's not uh, a book for mathematicians. What it is, is a book about real people's lives and about the places where they've been impacted by mathematics, perhaps without even realising it. So it might be stories of people who've been maligned by mathematical miscarriages of justice because the expert witness testifying against them was an expert in medicine, but perhaps not an expert in statistics. Or it might be people who've been given a dodgy medical test result because the doctor who was interpreting their results didn't have the statistical acumen to interpret what the results genuinely meant and to tell them about it. Or it might be people who have uh, read a statistic in a newspaper headline and made a significant life-changing choice based on that statistic, when in fact that statistic was not the whole truth. So I want to emphasise there are no equations in the book. This is not a book for people who need a maths PhD or a maths degree. This is a book for real people and for me the best way to explain maths is through telling stories and that's what I want to share with you tonight is just a few of the stories that are in the book. So the book's going to be in three parts. There's going to be uh, looking at mathematics and medicine and um, places where maths can play a significant role. Looking at maths in the media, so the the lies, damn lies and statistics that we find in newspaper headlines and on TV. And then finally I'm going to be looking at maths and crime and maths in the criminal justice system. And in particular I'm going to look at maths in terrorism this evening. Um, So to start with I'm going to talk about maths in medicine. Um, Maths is, is playing an increasingly important role in all sorts of medical arenas, but in particular I want to talk to you uh, about screening this evening. So for people who don't know, uh, screening is a way of um, taking a group of people who are at risk of a particular disease and giving them a broad brush test and saying, you need to come back for further testing because we think you might have this disease. Um, And so there's a lot of maths involved in it and I want to... uh, hopefully get you guys to help me with doing a problem which was set to 160 German doctors. I want to see whether you guys will be able to do a better job than these German doctors did. So I'm going to give you a few stats and hopefully you'll help me work through this problem uh, together. So in the UK, uh, women go to screening or are invited to screening after the age of 50 and the prevalence of undiagnosed breast cancer in women over 50 is around 0.4%. So that means of 1,000 women uh, who, have, who are over 50, four of them uh, will have undiagnosed breast cancer. So you will have heard statistics that uh, one in eight women will have breast cancer over the course of their lifetime, and those are true, but at any one point in time, the prevalence of undiagnosed breast cancer is only 0.4%, so it's quite low. 
If a woman has breast cancer and she goes for a screen, the screen will tell her that she has breast cancer correctly 90% of the time, and 10% of the time she'll be given an incorrect, false, negative diagnosis. She'll be told she doesn't have the disease when in fact she does. If a woman doesn't have breast cancer and she goes for the screen, then the probability she incorrectly tests positive is 10%. So 90% of the time she'll be correctly told she doesn't have the disease, but 10% of the time she'll be told incorrectly that she does have the disease, and this is called a false positive. So that happens 10% of the time. Okay, so these are the stats you need to know. And then the question that was asked of these 160 doctors in Germany was, which of the following options, I'm going to give you five options, multiple choice question, which of the following options best characterises the probability that a patient who receives a positive mammogram, someone who's asked to come back for further testing, actually has the disease? And so these are the options. A, 90%. B, 81%. C, 49.1%. D, 3.5%, or E, 0.4%. So just to summarise, prevalence is quite low, 0.4%. Four in a thousand women will have undiagnosed breast cancer. If a woman has breast cancer, the probability she tests positive is 90%. So nine times out of ten, she'll be given the correct result. If a woman doesn't have breast cancer, again, nine times out of ten, she'll be correctly told she doesn't have breast cancer. But one time out of ten, she'll be given incorrect false positive. And so the question is, of all the women that receive a positive diagnosis or they get asked for further testing from this screening process, what proportion of them, what percentage of them actually has breast cancer? So... Um, Okay, so the actual answer uh, is, and for me at least when I first saw this, this was a surprise based on my intuition of the problem. The actual answer is D, 3.5%, which uh, I think uh, most of you would agree with me in saying that this was a surprising result. Um, When the German doctors were asked this, fewer than 20% of them got the right answer, which means that they would have done better if they'd just been guessing at the answer on average. Um, So 3.5%, that seems crazy low that only 3.5% of these letters that get sent out to women who go for screening saying they need to come back for further testing, only 3.5% of them those women will actually have breast cancer. So why is that the case? And I want to work it through with you. You can use Bayesian probability, you can use Bayes' rule and conditional probabilities to work this out, but you don't need to do that. And this is, I guess, part of the point of the book is that we can simplify things. So instead, what I want us to do is just consider 10,000 women who are over 50 that go for a screen. And I'm going to break them down into this flowchart. So of those 10,000 women, 0.4% of them, or 40, will actually have breast cancer. The remaining 9,960 will not have breast cancer. Of the 40 that do have breast cancer, 90% of them will be correctly told they have breast cancer, so that's 36 women, and four of them, unfortunately, will be given a false negative. They'll be missed by the screening process. Of the women that don't have breast cancer, and remember, that's the vast majority of the women, that's 9,960 out of these 10,000 women, 90% of them, which is nearly 9,000 women, 8,964, will not have breast cancer and will be correctly told that they don't have breast cancer. So that's a true negative. But 10% of them, 10% of this very large fraction of women, 996 of them, in fact, will be incorrectly told that they have breast cancer, or at least that they need to come back for further testing. And these are the false positives. And so you can see that when a disease has a very low prevalence in the population, as low as 0.4% in the case of breast cancer, and we test a large number of those people, even if we have a very low rate of false positives, that can still end up giving 
far more positives than the true positives account for because there just aren't that many true positives to find in the first place. So when you calculate the proportion of correct positive results, you see that there's just 36 true positives and there are over 1,000 positives in total. So when you divide 36 by 1,032, the total number of positive results, you see that the prevalence is as low as 3.5% if these figures are correct. So I think it's quite a surprising result and uh, clearly a lot of doctors do as well. Um, another thing that I, I want us to, to emphasise is, is, well, what's the problem if we're picking up people with false positives? What does it matter as long as we're catching most of the people who actually do have the disease? Well, there's a story in the book about a lady called Kaz Daniels, and she goes for a screen. It's her first screen, in fact. And she gets a letter that arrives on a Thursday, and it says, you need to come in next Monday to the hospital for further testing because we found something anomalous in your screen. And Kaz thinks to herself... Why are they asking me to come in so soon after the letter? They're asking me to come in next Monday. That's three days' time. This must be serious. This must be cancer. And she, she spends the whole weekend worrying about what's going to happen to her teenage kids after she dies. Uh, and she doesn't eat properly. She doesn't sleep properly. And it causes her severe anxiety. And when she goes for the follow-up test on the Monday, she actually gets given uh, the all-clear. She's told that she doesn't have the disease as was always likely to be the case, because the vast majority of the letters that get sent out are actually false positives. So these false positives can cause serious psychological and emotional damage, um, but even the people that run the screening programmes admit that there are problems with them. So this is a quote from Muir Gray, who is the former director of the UK National Screening Programme. He said, all screening programmes do harm. Some do good as well, and of these, some do more good than harm at a reasonable cost. And this is a quote from Fiona Godley, who's the editor-in-chief of the British Medical Journal, quoting a study in the British Medical Journal. She said, the harms of screening are certain, but the benefits in overall mortality are not. So why is she saying this? Well, screens can be very effective ways of catching cancer early. And for people whose cancer is very serious, this is good news. The earlier you catch cancer and treat it, the better the survival rates are. But what screening does is it actually catches a large number of cancers which are so slow-growing or so small that they would never cause a problem in that woman's lifetime. But when someone hears the word cancer or tumour, an alarm bell goes off in their head and they start to worry and they decide to take evasive action so that they can avoid the possibility of cancer, whatever the consequences may be, even though that tumour may not have caused any problem in that woman's lifetime. And so people undergo potentially unnecessary surgery or treatment through radiotherapy, which of course have their own risks. So if you have mastectomy, then the, the operation itself and the general anaesthetic have their own risks. If you undergo radiotherapy, you have an increased risk of heart disease. So these screening programmes, although beneficial in some aspects, can also be detrimental as well. Um, so the other thing that I want to say about screening programmes is that if you go to enough of these screens, you should start to expect a false positive result. And so we can do a simple mathematical calculation, which if the rate of false positives is 10%, which it is for breast cancer screens in the UK, we can ask the question, how many screens do I have to go to before it becomes more likely than not that I will have received at least one false positive result? So to work this out, we're going to think about different numbers of tests, and we're going to first calculate the probability of having no false positives after that number of tests, and then we're going to subtract that figure from one to figure out the probability of at least one false positive. That's the easiest way to work it out, because there are only those two options. Either you've received no false positives, 
or you've received at least one false positive. So they must sum to one. Okay, so let's work it through with one test to start with. So after one test, the probability of receiving no false positive is 90% or 0.9 to the one, if I'm going to be technical about it. Uh, and therefore, the probability of a false positive is one minus that. It's just 0.1 or 10%. This is just what we were told in the question. So nothing new here. If each time you go for a screen, the probability of a false positive is independent each time, then I can work out after going to two tests what the probability of having no false positive result is. So after two tests, the probability of not receiving a false positive, well, I must have had no false positive on the first test with probability 0.9, and no false positive on the second test, also with probability 0.9. So if the two tests are independent, I can just multiply those together to give me a probability of 0.81, and then the probability of at least one false positive is just one minus that, which is 0.19. Okay. After three tests, I need to have had no false positive on the first and the second and the third. So I need to cube 0 0.9, 0 0.9 to the three, which is 0.729. And therefore, the probability of at least one false positive, the only other option, is one minus that at 0 0.271. And so I can keep going like this. It's going to get boring if I go all the way. Let's skip to the end. By the time you get to seven independent screening tests, the probability of not having a false positive is 0 0.9 multiplied by itself six more times, 0 0.9 to the seven, if I'm to have had no false positives on any of those tests. So that works out at just under a half, 0.478. So the probability of having at least one false positive during that time must be one minus that. It must be just over a half. So if you go for enough of these screens, you should start to expect a false positive. Women in the UK are invited to screening from the ages of about 50 to about 73, 74. So a woman in the UK might expect to go to seven, eight, maybe even nine screens over the course of her lifetime. And so according to the maths, she should start to expect to receive a false positive over the course of her lifetime, despite not ever having had breast cancer over that period. So we should start to expect these false positives. The good news is, though, that two tests are better than one. So when you get given a positive call-up, you're asked to go for further diagnostic tests, the good news is we run much more accurate tests on the few people that get called up, and we can dramatically reduce the rate of false positives. It's quite interesting to note, though, that even running the same test on just those people that test positive can dramatically reduce the rate of false positives. Even if you don't have a more accurate test to go to afterwards, if you just ran the same screen with the same accuracy, you can dramatically reduce the rate of false positives. Uh, which is why athletes, when they do a urine sample for drugs, they split it into an A sample and a B sample. The test they do on the B sample is no more accurate than the test they run on the A sample, but it dramatically reduces the rate of false positives by just running a second test. Okay, um, so the take-home messages that I want you to, to take from this part of the talk, and I want to be super, super clear about this. What I'm not advocating is not going to screening, ignoring letters from doctors, doctor bashing. I think doctors do an amazing job. I'm just suggesting that perhaps they're not always best place to interpret the numbers and it's best to educate yourself to go and interpret those numbers for yourself. But please don't cancel your screens because of this. For me, I would say let's take screening results with a pinch of salt. I would, like to, I would, I would make the analogy to screenings with a job interview. So when a company wants to hire someone for a job, they send out an advert and people send in their CVs. And the company can read those CVs quickly and make a shortlist. 
And that's a really cheap way, just as the first screen is a really cheap way of identifying people who might be suitable for the job, people who might have breast cancer. And then for the job interview, you call people in and you interview them and you throw assessment centres at them. You do tests which are too expensive to do to the whole population at large to identify someone good for the job, but you can do it to the smaller population. And in the same way, with the screen, we invite people in and we throw more expensive, more accurate tests at them to give them a diagnosis. And the point is, just because you would get invited to an interview that you'd, for a job you'd applied for, you wouldn't assume that you'd got the job, right? So in the same way, just because you get invited for further tests after a screen, you shouldn't assume you have the disease that is being screened for. You should wait and go to the follow-up test and see what that follow-up test says. So take screening results with a pinch of salt. If you go to enough of these screening results, you should start to expect a false positive. Uh, we just saw the maths of that. If you go to seven screens with a false positive rate of 10% in each one, you should start to expect a false positive over the course of your lifetime. And then finally, ask for a second opinion. This swings two ways. Both get a second test done, okay, because two tests are better than one. You can dramatically reduce the rate of false positives. But also, don't be afraid to question the person who's giving you these statistics. We should feel more empowered, even if we don't feel super mathematically capable, to ask, where do these figures come from? Can you explain this to me in a different way so that I can understand it? And, and hopefully, uh, if your doctor genuinely does understand the mathematics, they will be able to do that for you. So ask for a second opinion. Okay, so that's the, the first part of the talk and some take-home messages. Now I'm going to move on to talking about the media and the places where we see numbers uh, appearing in the media. But I'm going to stay on a sort of medical theme because I think that nowadays in the newspapers we see headlines almost every day saying... Um, the impact of some lifestyle choice that you're making on your risk of getting some disease. So it might be uh, that you are eating too much, or you're eating the wrong stuff, or you're sleeping too much, or you're drinking too much, or a uh, favourite trope of newspapers, you're drinking too little uh, at the moment. So, so these, these statistics are everywhere, and I think we uh, need to be better prepared to be able to interpret them. So... Um, I want to tell you about a particular headline that I read a few years ago. Back in 2008, the World Cancer Research Fund published a 500-page review paper, an article in the journal, which summarised the results of hundreds of uh, studies which looked into lifestyle choices and how they impacted on our chances of getting various different types of cancer. Um, and uh, yeah, as I say, there were hundreds of studies in this, in this article that the World Cancer Research Fund put together. And the Sun uh, picked up on this and they decided to focus on just one of these articles. And they focused on one which said um, that if you eat 50 grams of processed meat every day, um, your chance of colorectal cancer increases. And this is the way that the Sun decided to sell their headline for this story, uh, Careless Pork Costs Lives. And in the, in the article underneath this headline, the Sun made this claim that eating a bacon sandwich every day increases your risk of colorectal cancer by 20%. And I read that and I thought, could it be true that if the background rate of colorectal cancer in the population is... 5%, say, for people who don't eat a bacon sandwich, that by eating a bacon sandwich every day, you increase your risk to 25%. Do a quarter of all people who eat bacon sandwiches get colorectal cancer? Uh, so I wanted to dig down into the, the statistics and figure out what this headline actually meant. 
Uh, in, the, in the days following this headline, The Sun decided to launch the Save Our Bacon campaign, where they branded scientists as health Nazis who declared a war, war, uh, sorry, who declared a war on bacon, despite the fact, as I mentioned, that the original article only talks about processed meat, not bacon sandwiches. But uh, they decided that um, you know, talking about bacon sandwiches would strike at the heart of the British psyche and really, really damage us. So they used this as, as sort of propaganda, and they sold a lot of papers on the back of of it. Um, so I went, I went to look at the statistics, and this is what the Sun had found. This figure that they calculated is something called a relative risk. So what they'd found is that of people that don't eat a bacon sandwich every day, five of them might expect to get colorectal cancer over the course of their lifetime. And of people that do eat a bacon sandwich every day, six of them might expect to get colorectal cancer over the course of their lifetime. And so what they'd done is calculated this thing called the relative risk, which is the risk of getting the disease with eating a bacon sandwich and without eating a bacon sandwich. Usually, relative risk is uh, we're talking about drug trials and we want to know what the increase or decrease in risk uh, of getting a particular disease is when you're taking a particular treatment. In this case, the treatment is eating a bacon sandwich every day. Um, so this is what they calculated. They calculated the relative risk. And so they divided six by five and they calculated this figure of 1.2 and correctly... Uh, inferred that this represents a 20% increase in the relative risk. So this is what their, their figure, where their figure came from, this 20% figure, which seems quite alarming. Um, but when I went to the actual World Cancer Research Fund paper and looked up the real statistics, I found that these are, the, uh, these are what's called the absolute risks, which were given in the paper, and it shows that of 100 people who don't eat a bacon sandwich every day, just five of them, or 5% of people, would expect to get colorectal cancer over the course of their lifetime. Whereas, of people that do eat a bacon sandwich, this increases massively to six out of 100. So it's really not a huge increase. In fact, when you present it in this, these absolute terms, the increase in absolute risk is just 1%. And that doesn't seem so dramatic, right? It doesn't seem as dramatic as 20%, quite obviously. But, but an increase, an absolute risk of, uh, of 1% doesn't sell many newspapers, whereas a 20% risk gets people taking the newspaper off the stand and really trying to understand how dangerous bacon sandwiches actually are. So I think that um, unless, if you're reading a newspaper article and you, and you see one big, usually percentage figure, rather than a decimal to make it look bigger, if you see one big percentage figure, it's usually going to be the relative risk. And if you're not presented with the absolute risk, so the risk with taking the treatment and the, the risk without taking the treatment, then you should think really carefully about whether you believe the rest of the things that are being written in that article. And if you can, you should dig down and try to go behind the headlines and try to follow up with the real scientific article, which nowadays are increasingly available online and for free. Um, so presenting figures using these different sort of risks is often known as, as mismatched framing. And we'd like to think it was restricted to the newspapers, but actually mismatched framing, so presenting um, risks in different ways to give different feelings of how dangerous something is, that is, um, that's quite common in both scientific papers and in patient advice literature. So this is a screenshot from uh, the Breast Cancer Risk Assessment Tool from the National Cancer Institute in the USA. This is from around 20 years ago now. You can see how dated it is. 
Um, and one of the, this, this was a, a tool which was designed to give people who were suffering from breast cancer informed information about what the risks of uh, taking particular treatments for breast cancer was and how effective they were. So in particular, they reported the results of one study on a drug which is quite famous now called tamoxifen, designed for treating breast cancer. And this is the way they reported the risks. So they said women taking tamoxifen had a 49% fewer diagnoses of breast cancer. That seems pretty impressive. Tamoxifen has cut the cases of breast cancer by half. And when they presented the risks of the side effects of getting uterine cancer, this is one of the side effects of tamoxifen, they decided to present it like this. So they said the annual rate of uterine cancer was just 23 per 10,000, sounds pretty small, for women taking tamoxifen, compared to 9.1 per 10,000 for people in the placebo arm, so people taking a placebo drug so we can control what's happening and figure out uh, what the background rate of the risk is. But both of those figures seem pretty small. 23 in 10,000 and 9 in 10,000 seem like there's not really much of a difference between the two. And that's at least what the idea that the breast cancer risk assessment tool wanted to present. Even subconsciously, this is what they wanted to present. They upplayed the, the benefits of tamoxifen and downplayed the potential side effects of tamoxifen. Um, so what we really need to do, though, is to present these using the same metric, using the same risk, the absolute risk or the relative risk. So to give a fair comparison, what we should have done is probably use the absolute risk. This would have given the fairest picture. So for uterine cancer, the side effect, tamoxifen causes 23 uh, cases of uterine cancer per 10,000 women. And without taking tamoxifen, that's just 9.1 cases per 10,000 women. Whereas for breast cancer, tamoxifen uh, reduces the, the number from 68 per 10,000 to 34 per 10,000. But actually, 68 per 10,000 and 34 per 10,000 are not that different from 23 per 10,000 and 9.1 per 10,000. But at least now we have the same frame to compare these figures with. And overall, you can see that um, tamoxifen reduces cancer by 34, per, 34 cases in 10,000 for breast cancer. It increases it by 14 cases of uterine cancer per 10,000. But overall, there is a net benefit. So they didn't really need to hide behind these, uh, these mismatch framing. If you were going to present it in terms of the relative risks, then as we've already seen, tamoxifen has, um, it slashes breast cancer rates nearly in half, so 49% fewer diagnoses. But the reason the breast cancer risk assessment tool didn't want to present the side effects using this relative risk is because this increase of 14 cases on an original case of, or original number of nine cases per 10,000 is a massive increased risk of 153%, which is exactly why they didn't want to present the relative uh, risk for the side effects. But it's not fair if you don't present things using the same frame. So you've got to watch out for mismatch framing, not just in the newspapers, but also in medical literature and even in scientific papers, unfortunately. Okay. Um, so there are lots of ways to manipulate statistics in the newspapers and in medical literature. And there are loads more in the book that I, I talk about and, and go through. Um, but if all else fails you, then you can always do what President Trump did back in 2015 and just make it up. So I should warn you, this is, this is an area of the talk where things do get a little bit more serious. This is quite a, a serious part of the talk, so I want you to be aware of that before we get into it. This is an infographic that was retweeted by Donald Trump in November 2015 in the run-up to the Republican Party's nomination for the candidate to be president. Um, 
And I want to highlight a couple of the statistics for you. So uh, in particular, this was the time when the Black Lives Matter movement was at its zenith. So this figure that's highlighted here, uh, the proportion of black people who were killed who were killed by police is uh, allegedly 1%, according to this infographic. And for balance, the proportion of black people, um, sorry, white people killed by police is apparently 3%. And the other figures I want to highlight to you are the proportion of white people killed by other white people seems to be as low as 16%, and the proportion of white people killed by black people as high as 81%. So there's a bit of a spoiler alert that comes with this infographic. The, these statistics come directly from the Crime Statistics Bureau in San Francisco. The Crime Statistics Bureau of San Francisco is completely made up. It doesn't exist. And these figures commensurately are also made up. So I actually did a little fact check on this and I went to the FBI's website to find the real statistics. So here are the real statistics. So for direct comparison with what I just told you, um, black people killed by police is not 1%, it's actually 11%. The proportion of um, black people who are killed in the United States killed by police is 11%. Okay, so the proportion of black people who are killed in the United States, uh, killed by police officers, is 11%. The proportion killed by white people is 16%. So these figures actually come directly, not from the FBI's website, but actually from the Guardian website, because the FBI, uh, at this point in time, 2015, were not keeping accurate statistics on the ethnicities of people killed by their police. The director of the FBI at the time, James Comey, who you may have heard of, came out and said it's embarrassing that this British newspaper has got better statistics on the ethnicities of people killed by our police than we do. And now the FBI do keep better statistics. But to get these figures in 2015, I had to go to the Guardian website. And the other figures I want to emphasize to you for comparison, the proportion of white people who are killed in the United States who are killed by other white people is actually 81%, not 16%, as the infographic claimed. And the proportion of white people killed by black people is not 81%, it's actually 16%. So they'd been crudely transposed, these two figures. Okay. So so this is just a basic fact check. This isn't really um, complicated mathematics. But as the Black Lives Matter movement made its way over to the UK, I read this um, article that was drawn to my attention uh, by Rod Little. And I want to read it to you, this, this piece of the article that he wrote. He said, There's also no doubt whatsoever that the greatest danger to black people in the United States is other black people. And to support this claim, he came up with these figures. He said, black-on-black -black murders average more than 4,000 each year. The number of black men killed by US cops, rightly or wrongly, is little more than 100 each year. And then he finished with this taunt, go on, do the math. Uh, hoping, I presumably, that no one would actually go and do the math. So uh, <laughs> I did the math, right? Um, so Little said black-on-black -black murders average more than 4,000 each year. If you go to the FBI's website to find out the number of black people who were killed in 2015, which was the last year that Little could conceivably have got statistics for if he'd wanted to, you find that the total number of black people who were killed in, 20, in America in 2015 is 2,664, so nowhere near the 4,000 that Little claims. Of those... 2,380 were committed by black people and 229 were committed by white people. Um, and then for law enforcement officers, so this is, for my definition, it's people who carry a badge and a gun, um, the number of black people who were killed by law enforcement officers, Little said the number of black men killed by US cops, rightly or wrongly, is little more than 100 each year. In fact, if you find the real statistics, it's over 300, so three times as many as Little has, had claimed. Nevertheless, Certainly, the number of black people killed by other black people is higher than the number of 
um, black people killed by law enforcement officers. But as I'll show in a second, this is a really disingenuous comparison to make. For comparison, I also want to give you the figure for um, killings in which the uh, victim was white. Uh, and so those are 3,167 total killings, 500 of which were perpetrated by black people, 2,574 by white people, and 584 by uh, police officers or law enforcement officers. And the figure that I want to draw your attention to, perhaps most of all on here, is this statistic up here, the total number of killings. Um, and I think by focusing, or little focusing on who's doing the killing, rather than on who it is that's being killed, he hides this statistic away. So actually, black people account for around 45% of the killings uh, in the United States, despite the fact they only account for roughly 12% of the population of the United States. So I think that's an alarming figure that actually needs to be brought to attention and not hidden away, which is what Little was trying to do. Anyway, despite that fact, I want to emphasise the point that Little's claim about 4,000 uh, black people killing other black people and 100, only 100 uh, law enforcement officers uh, killing black people is disingenuous. And, the reason, and I want to show you this by use of a, a thought experiment. So Little said there's no doubt whatsoever that the greatest danger to black people is other black people. Uh, and in fact, I'm, we're going to do this thought experiment to try and, to, to try and debunk this claim. So I'll give you some statistics. In 2015, toddlers shot and killed 21 US citizens. In the same year, 2015, bears killed just two US citizens. And the thought experiment is this. I want you to say, would you rather be left alone in a room with a bear or with a toddler? <laughs> For me, I'm pretty sure it's a toddler. The reason toddlers kill so many more people in the United States than bears do is not because toddlers are inherently more murderous than bears. It's because there are a shed load more toddlers in the United States than there are bears. And crazily, they somehow get man managed to have access to guns. And for exactly the same reason, black people don't kill more black people in the United States because they're inherently more murder murderous than law enforcement officers are. There are just a shed load more black people in the United States than there are law enforcement officers. So what we really need to calculate is not the, the absolute number of killings by each of these populations, but we need to figure in the size of those populations and divide through by that to get what's called the per capita rate of killing. So if you do that, these are the statistics we've already seen. So um, black citizens, um, the number of black citizens um, killed by other black citizens is 2,380. Number of black citizens killed by law enforcement officers is 307. These are the, the real figures. Um, if you figure in the population size, the population of uh, black people in the United States is over 40 million, whereas law enforcement officers are around 635,000. If you divide the figure in this column by the figure in this column, you get the per capita killing rate, which is equivalent to asking, if I'm a black person, I'm walking down a street in a dark alley and I see someone coming towards me, who should I be more scared of? Should I be more scared it's another black person or more scared that it's a police officer? And so if you work out dividing the figures in this column by this column, you find the per capita killing rate of black citizens is one in 17,000, but for law enforcement officers, it's over eight times higher. It's one in 2,000. So to caveat this, I should say that, of course, if you encounter a law enforcement officer, it's quite likely to be in a confrontational situation. Law enforcement officers also do carry guns. But I guess the point is that I'm not trying to make any, any huge point just by showing these figures, other than to say that Little's claim, just looking at the number of killings perpetrated by each of these subpopulations, isn't enough. You actually need to think a little bit more carefully about the mathematics and, and do some 
do some math if you like. Okay, so uh, the take home messages for the end of this part of the talk are, firstly, look out for these relative risks. Um, if you see a single figure in a newspaper article or a scientific journal, which is a percentage figure and it's a big figure, you should be thinking that someone wants you just to see this one figure. They don't want you to dig down and find the absolute risk. So do the opposite of what they want you to do. Go and find those absolute risks and get a true picture of what the risk of, uh, of a particular disease is. Beware of mismatch framing. If someone, again, presents just one figure or presents the benefits using a big percentage figure and the uh, side effects using small decimal numbers, then you should be really careful about that. This should be raising alarm bells in your head. And finally, this one, this one is not really a sort of a maths one, but uh, it's, it's sort of certainly prevalent and, and pertinent to, uh, to our times at the moment, which is don't trust politicians uh, in almost anything that they say. Um, okay, so that's the end of that part of the talk. And I, I'm going to finish by talking about maths of crime, and in particular, I'm going to talk about maths of terrorism. But I'm going to start by doing uh, a little game with you guys, um, which is uh, it's called the birthday problem in mathematics. Some people may have heard of it, some people won't have done. Um, I believe we've got about 200 people in the audience tonight, um, but I want to do this with about 50 people. So I'm just going to select this proportion of the audience here in this central segment and, uh, and in the lower tier, if possible. Um, so the question is, what's the probability that two people in this room, or at least in this segment that I'm interested in, share a birthday? There are roughly 50 people in this segment, and there are 365 days in the year, and I'm going to make a bet, I'm quite happy to bet, that there will be at least two people in this segment who share a birthday. So 50 people, 365 days of the year. Is anyone willing to take me on at evens? I've got a shiny pound to place on this. Is anyone willing to take the other half of the bet that there won't be two people who share a birthday? Yeah, mate, thank you. What's your name? Kwaku, thanks Kwaku, I appreciate that. I'll put my money on the table. Um, I was going to go two pounds to one, but you've, you've leapt straight in, so I really appreciate that. Um, brilliant. Okay, so um, well, we're going to do it, right? So the way I'm going to do this is, I'm going to go through the months of the year, one at a time, January, February, so on. I'm going to ask you to put your hand up if you have your birthday in that month of the year. And I'm just going to go through people who have their hands up one by one and ask you to shout out the number of the, of the day in, of your birthday in that month. Bear in mind, I don't, I don't know any of you, at least I hope I don't know any of you. I don't know any of your birthdays, certainly. Um, so let's, let's see how this works out. It's probability, so anything can happen. Um, okay, so I'm going to start off with January. Who's got a birthday in January? Yes, yeah, sir, at the back. Five. Five. Wow, that was almost game over. Uh, it's uh, 22. 17th. Uh, that's it for January. Okay, all right. Let's move on. February. Okay, yes, lady at the back there. 14. 8. 11. 26. 9. 14. So we've got um, two, two Valentine's Day birthdays in there. That's lovely. Um, should we carry on? Just see, see if we can... We'll just do a couple more. We'll just do a couple more, see if there are any more uh, startling coincidences. So um, let's go for March. Who's got a birthday in March? Right, lots of people. Yes, sir, back. Yeah, you, Chris, sorry. I actually do know you. <laughs> 16. Four. Four? Four and four, okay. Should we carry on? Let's just finish March and then we'll stop. Yeah. First? 20th. 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 Twi you twins? Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yes. <laughs> plant, it's a fake, it's a fake. Uh, let's carry on, yes? 15? 17? 16? 
Oh, that was 17, oh yeah, 16, 16, yeah, okay. So um, it's, gonna keep, it's gonna keep happening. I'll stop there, otherwise we'll be here all night. Um, I shouldn't have asked the twins to come along. <laughs> Thanks guys, I'll pay you, pay you later. Um, okay, so this, this is great news for me. Uh, I'll come and collect my pound later, don't worry. Um, okay, so I guess the, the question, the other way of phrasing this question is, how many people do I need to have in the room or to have in this section of the audience before the probability of two people sharing a birthday becomes more than a half, before it becomes more than sensible for me to take my half of this better evens odds? Uh, and the answer is low, actually. The answer is surprisingly low. The answer is just 23 people uh, to, to make the odds of two people having a birthday um, more likely than not. And I think that's mad. I, I, when I first saw this problem, I was super, super surprised by this. Um, and so I want to try and explain why it's just 23 people and why coincidences perhaps are more likely to occur than we think they are intuitively. So what really matters in this problem is not the number of people in, uh, in the room, or not specifically the number of people, but actually the number of pairs of people, because that's what we're thinking about. We're thinking about two people sharing a birthday. So I want to come up with a formula which tells me when I've got a certain number of people in the room, how uh, many pairs of people I have with that number of people in the room. So there is a nice mathematical formula, and we're going to derive it now. So I've got my sort of uh, crap reservoir maths dogs up on the, on, the, on the board here. I've got Mr. Green, Mr. Orange, Mr. Purple, Mr. Lilac, maybe, uh, and, or Mr. Blue, let's call him Mr. Blue, and Mr. White. So I'm going to get Green to come up first, and Green will shake hands with Orange and Purple and Blue and White, and that's four handshakes. And then Orange will go along and shake hands with Purple and Blue and White, and that's three handshakes. And then Purple Purple will come along and shake hands with blue and white, and that's two handshakes. And then finally, the only people that haven't shaken hands yet are white and blue, and they shake hands, and that's one. And what you'll notice is there's a nice pattern coming out. So this is the sum of four plus three plus two plus one, the sum of the first four integers. And there's no mistake that it was four because there were five people in the room. So it's the sum, in general, if I've got n people in the room, it's the sum of the first n minus one integers. That's the number of handshakes. But this is going to be tedious to add this, this uh, number, of, uh, number of consecutive integers up, consecutive whole numbers, when I've got a large number of people in the room. So, uh, yeah, surprise, surprise, this, this adds up to 10. That's nice. But what happens when we've got more people? Well, I want to come up with a general formula for the number of pairs of people. So um, these things are called triangular numbers when you add up consecutive whole numbers starting from one. And I'll show you why they're called triangular numbers in a second. But first, I need to find out if everyone knows the song, The Twelve Days of Christmas. Does everyone know that? I'm not going to ask you to sing it, um, but is there anyone that doesn't know the song, The Twelve Days of Christmas? Oh, someone over here. Right, cool, that's fine, don't worry. You've got this incredibly generous girlfriend or boyfriend, uh, and they're your true love, and um, they give you presents on each of the days of Christmas. So uh, on the first day of Christmas, you get one present, you get a partridge in a pear tree. Technically, that's two presents, but we'll count it as one. Um, and on the second day, you get that partridge in a pear tree again, but you also get two turtle doves. You get two presents, so you get three in total. On the next day, you get the partridge in the pear tree, the two turtle doves, uh, the three French hens, and then it keeps going like this all the way up to the 12th day of Christmas. And I guess what I want to do is try to figure out on the 12th day of Christmas, 
how many presents you get on that day. And, and it's going to be this triangular number because it's going to be 1 plus 2 plus 3 all the way up to 12. Okay, so the question is, let's start simple. On the fifth day of Christmas, five gold rings, etc. how many presents does my true love send to me? So you get, firstly, this partridge in a pear tree, and then these two turtle doves, and these three French hens, four calling birds, and then it's really difficult not to sing, five gold rings. Uh, so you get these, these um, presents, and you want to know how many there are. You could just count them, but we're going to do this for 12 days of Christmas. Maybe even if your true love is really generous, you want to know on the 364th day of Christmas how many presents they're going to give you. So we need a general formula. We can't just add it up. So this is why they're called triangular numbers, because they make this nice triangular array. Um, and so I'm going to rearrange them slightly to make a slightly different triangle, a right-angled triangle. And then I'm going to bring on a whole second set of these objects, which are going to make a really nice array, an array which is really easy to figure out the, the number of objects in. Okay, it's a rectangle, and to figure it out, we just need to multiply the number of columns by the number of rows. So there are, in general, when it's the nth day of Christmas, there are going to be n rows and n plus 1 columns. So I just need to multiply uh, n by n plus 1 and divide, remember, by 2, because I brought in two sets of these gifts. So on the fifth day of Christmas, I take 5 and multiply it by 6 to get 30. I divide it by 2, and 15 is the fifth triangular number, which is great, and you can add them up just to check that. If you play snooker, you'll know this well. You have 15 red balls, and they make this nice triangular array when you put them in the triangle. So that's the fifth triangular number. So in general, I've got this formula for triangular numbers. For the nth triangular number, where n is just some whole number, I multiply n by n plus 1, and I divide it by 2, and that will tell me how many objects I have, or, in the case of handshakes, how many handshakes there need to be. So... When I've got 23 people in the room, how many pairs of people are there? Well, the first person can get up and shake hands with 22 people, and the next person with 21, and the next person with 20, and 19, and 18, and so on. And I don't know why I animated the whole thing, because I've got a formula to do this now, rather than having to write down all the numbers and then add them up. But if you do write them all down, the last person, or the penultimate person, rather shakes hands with one last person, and then you have add on that one, and actually, I've got a formula, so I don't need to add these up. So it's 23 times 22 divided by 2, which is 253. So there are 253 pairs of people when I've got 23 people in the room. And that's what's important. That goes some way to explaining why it's more likely than not to have two people that share a birthday. But we're not quite there yet. We need to do a little bit more mathematics. So let's think about... Um, the probability that when I've got one pair of people in the room, what's the probability they don't share a birthday? I'm going to do that same trick I did before with expecting the false positives. I'm going to first figure out what's the probability two people don't share a birthday, and then I'm going to figure out from that the probability that at least two people do share a birthday, because those are the only two options. Either two people don't share a birthday, or at least two people do share a birthday. And those must sum to one, because it's probability. Okay, so... With one pair of people in the room, the probability, little p, that two people don't share a birthday. Well, the first person can have their birthday on any day of the year, and the second person can have their birthday on this day, or 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 this day. Hopefully I stop there. Any of the other 364 days of the year. So the probability that two people don't share a birthday when I've got one pair of people in the room is 364 divided by 365. 
Okay, so that's just one pair of people. I need to scale this up to when I've got 253 pairs of people. So what's the probability capital P that when I have 253 pairs of people, they don't share a birthday? Well, assuming the birthdays are independent of each other, which is a decent enough assumption when you've got a low number of people in the room, this probability is the probability that one pair don't share a birthday multiplied by itself 253 times for each one of those pairs, or 364 divided by 365 raised to the power of 253. So although 364 divided by 365 is a number which is pretty close to one, when you multiply it by itself enough times, it gets lower and lower and lower. And by the time you do it 253 times, you get to a number which is just below a half. So that's the probability two people don't share a birthday. So the probability that two people do share a birthday is one minus that, or at least two people share a birthday is one minus that, uh, which is just over a half. Okay, so this is the theory. We've done the theory. We've seen it work a little bit in practice. Well, I could have planted the twins, for example, in the audience. Um, so let's see, does it actually work in, in practice? So back in the World Cup in 2014, um, there were 32 teams competing, and each of these teams had 23 players in their squad. This magic number that I said should give us a probability of roughly a half that two people share a birthday. So you could do, if you were so inclined, go through the Brazil team, for example, and find out all their birthdays and see if any of them matched, if you wanted to. And if you did do that, you would find that Hulk and Paulinho had a birthday shared on the 25th of July. And if you did want to, you could go through all the other 32 teams and check out all those 23 times 32 people's birthdays and see which teams had a birthday which matched. And you would find that exactly half of them, 16 out of 32, have two, at least two players whose birthdays match. Now, this is probability, so it doesn't always work out to give us this exact expected number of teams being exactly half the teams. There will be some variation in this. But at the 2014 World Cup, this is exactly how it worked out, and these are the teams that had two players that shared a birthday. So I'm going to finish on a little bit more of a somber note, and this is, this is a, yeah, again, a little bit more of a serious part of the talk, I guess, talking about how we can apply this birthday uh, problem logic to the real world. So... Um, On the 22nd of May 2017, uh, an Ariana Grande concert was finishing at the Manchester Arena in my hometown of Manchester, a place where I've been to uh, gigs when I was a teenager. And um, people were coming out of the concert, kids were coming out of the concert to meet their parents, and parents were coming to pick their kids up and take them home. Um, and then Salman Abedi walked into the arena with a rucksack which was filled with explosives and nails and screws and bolts, and he blew himself up, and he killed 22 innocent people that evening. Um, and I was watching this, I was actually not in Manchester at the time, I wasn't even in the country, I was in Mexico, and we were six hours behind. And because this happened in the night, I was watching this uh, come through um, in, the, in the afternoon in Mexico and, and watch this story develop overnight. Well, most people in, in, at home in Manchester or in the UK were still asleep and hadn't actually... Um, I hadn't actually heard about this. And I followed this news story quite closely because it was in my hometown of Manchester. And over the following days, I noticed a strange coincidence. I noticed that exactly four years earlier, on the 22nd of May 2013, Fusilier Lee Rigby was brutally murdered outside his barracks in Woolwich in another Islamist terrorist attack. And I wasn't the only person to have noticed this. So the Daily Star ran this headline a couple of days later, Dates Matter to Jihadis, Manchester Arena Attack on Anniversary of... Oh, sorry, on Lee Rigby Anniversary. And in this uh, story, they quoted a tweet from Sebastian Gorka, who was then President Trump's deputy assistant. And he said, 
Manchester explosion happens on the fourth anniversary of public murder of Fusilier Lee Rigby. Dates matter to jihadi terrorists. And I thought this was an interesting assertion to make. It was interesting that he'd made the connection and then that he'd made a causal connection to say that um, because these two things happened on the same day, it must have been by planning. It couldn't have been by chance. And he was making a statement which is inherently a mathematical statement, but the maths is hidden completely out of sight. And so he's using this to further, presumably, some anti-Islam agenda that he has to make people more scared of terrorists than really they should be, to make terrorists seem more organized than they actually are. And so I thought, well, is this the case? What are the chances that... If, two, if terrorist incidents just happening purely at random, without any planning, what are the chances that two of them would occur on the same day of the year? So I, I went back and I went to um, a reliable source, Wikipedia, uh, and I looked at the number of terrorist incidents over the previous five years, between April 2013 and April 2018. Uh, and I found that there were 39 terrorist attacks against Western nations, which conceivably, if they'd happened on the same day, we would have said, wow, that's a coincidence, and, and Gorka would have made this tweet saying, Jihadis are very organized and can strike at will. Uh, and when you plot this on the, on the birthday problem chart, you see that with 39 independent events happening completely at random, the probability that two of them will fall on the same day is nearly 90%. In short, you'd be far more surprised if two of these events hadn't happened on the same day of the year than if two of them did happen on the same day of the year as they actually did. And I, I think to some extent it puts the lie to what Gorka was claiming, that because a coincidence happens, there must be something causal happening in the background. It couldn't possibly just be by chance. Um, and so I guess that's where I want to finish for tonight. I, I, I want to finish with a few take-home messages which are, for this part of the talk at least, coincidences can be surprisingly likely. We don't really see them and it's only when we notice them that we've, we think they're amazing uh, coincidence and we think, oh, that's really surprising. I can't believe that's actually happened. But actually, coincidences are happening all the time. We're just not noticing them a lot of the time. And this birthday problem is a nice, ma nice mathematical way of explaining how likely coincidences really are. Um, this second one is, is the message that the, the main message that I want to come out of the whole of the book and of this talk is don't be blinded by the illusion of certainty. Don't let the people who are wielding statistics potentially uh, against us, don't let them have the last word. Don't, just because someone's armed with a number or a statistic, those aren't nuggets of irrefutable truth. We have to question the statistics. We have to question the people who are wielding the statistics, the newspapers or, or the expert witnesses in courts or, or the politicians. We need to, to fact-check them and to find out what these numbers actually mean. And you don't need to have a maths degree or training in maths to ask the question and to be bold and to question this illusion of certainty that numbers present. Uh, and then finally, the, the last take-home is um, when you're in a talk with a mathematician, uh, probably don't make a bet with them. So beware of mathematicians bearing gifts. Um, thanks so much for your attention. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks. That's it for this month. Thanks for listening. Drop us a comment on iTunes or SoundCloud to let us know what you think. If you liked this episode, you can support the Royal Institution on Patreon for as little as $1 a month. You can also get Kit Yates's book, The Maths of Life and Death, from all good bookshops. And don't forget to head over to rigb.org to see what talks we have coming up next. <laughs>